1: This is the Thoughts From a Page Podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode, I interview authors about their latest works and others in the book world about their jobs, what those jobs entail, and the books that they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. I recently posted two interesting bonus episodes to my Patreon account. First, for my indie bookstore series, I interviewed Alana Haley at Schuller Books in Grand Rapids, Michigan, about her store, how it went viral on TikTok, its place in the community, and the fact that the store is also an indie publisher. For my Bookstagrammer series, I chatted with Deb Coco of At Lone Star Words and Kathy Starnes of At K Starnes about their accounts, the process of writing reviews, and then we followed it up with a deep dive into Southern literature. Thanks to the fabulous people that have joined my Patreon group as page turners. I am thrilled to chat books with you and greatly appreciate the support. If you have not joined yet and want to learn more, the link is in the show notes. Thank you as well to the wonderful individuals who have shared about the podcast recently on Instagram. Kelly of Kelly Hook Reads Books. Virginia of Virginia's Reading Life. Nana of Read the World Better. Deb of Lone Star Words. Kathy of K-Starns. Becky of Becky on Books. Mary of Homegrown Book Picks, Kristen of Kristen's Reading Milk, and Yvonne of Yo! Books and Things. I really appreciate your sharing it and helping more people find the podcast. Thanks to Maggie Garza of HTX Real Estate Group for sponsoring this podcast. Today I am chatting with Christine Pride and Joe Piazza about We Are Not Like Them. Christine is a writer, editor, and longtime publishing veteran. As an editor, Christine has published a range of books with a special emphasis on inspirational stories and memoirs. As a freelance editorial consultant, she does select editing and proposal content development, as well as teaching and coaching, and pens a regular column, Race Matters, for Cup of Joe. She lives in New York City. Joe is an award-winning journalist, editor, and podcast host. She is also the author of Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win, How to Be Married, The Knockoff, Fitness Junkie, and If Nuns Ruled the World. She lives in Philadelphia with her husband and two small children. I really love chatting with them, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Christine and Joe. How are you guys today?
2: We're good. We're good. We're so excited to be here. We're really happy to be here. Thanks for having us.
1: I'm so glad that you're both here, and I can't wait to talk about your book. It is just such a beautiful, heartbreaking book, but I very, very much enjoyed it. It's actually my, one of my October picks for a magazine column that I do here in Houston called Buzz Reads. I just thought it was outstanding, and I hope everyone will read it.
2: From your lips.
1: <laughs> well, why don't we start out with one of you telling me a little bit about the book for those that haven't read it.
0: Yeah, definitely. So Christine and I, we share a brain at this point. Three years of writing a book together, will do that to you. So we tend to trade off with, uh, give the elevator pitch of the book and give the meet cute story of how you guys started writing a book together. Our book at its heart is the story of a lifelong friendship between two women. They met when they were really little in daycare and we meet them again when they're in their early thirties and, you know, they're in adulthood and they're figuring life out and they're very different than they were when they first met. The two women are white and black. Jen is a white woman and Riley is a black woman and Jen is married to a Philadelphia police officer. The book opens when Jen's husband, Kevin, shoots an unarmed Black teenager, and Riley is the newscaster who has to cover the story. And this tragedy weaves through the book, and we see how these two women and how their friendship get through it. And for the first time in their lives and in their friendship, they're truly challenged by what race means in their friendship, in this interracial friendship. It was so interesting for us because while we were writing, I learned the statistic that 75% of white people don't have a friend of another race. And so we, we were really excited to get an interracial friendship, a lifelong interracial friendship down on the page.
1: I saw that statistic in the book, and I was so curious about it. And I thought, that's a shame, and maybe that partly explains some of the trouble that we have had for so long and are currently having.
2: I think so. and that's you know that's part of the reason that we wanted to write the story and that we wanted to come together as a black woman and a white woman to tell the story. It's so funny that when we do podcast and audio like this, we have to sort of specify our races. <laughs> we wanted to bring our particular and unique perspectives to the table. I mean, obviously, we've had different life experiences as a black woman and a white woman. And that's really what informs the story. But to your point about, you know, sort of more people having these conversations, these are conversations that we had to have as well. On one hand, the statistics seems a little bit shocking. But on the other hand, when you uh, look around at restaurants and bars and churches and schools, right, you see a pretty strict social segregation which means that the friendship that we're portraying on the page and even Joe and I's friendship in real life is on the rarer side. And so in that respect, our characters are a little bit of a proxy for the kind of conversations that one would have and we hope one would want to have if they had a friend close friend of another race. And so you can see those kind of conversations play out. And hopefully that's also inspiration for wanting to seek out those kind of conversations yourself in real life.
1: What was it like writing this book together? As I was reading it, and I had read a reading group guide, an interview that you guys had done where it was challenging at times, which of course I would expect it to be. But I was so curious, like, was it really hard at times to kind of flesh out portions of it where there I mean, where were the problems? Like where did you truly have your hiccups if that makes sense?
0: Oh, my gosh, how long do we have? <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> However long you'd like. <laughs> you know, we actually really enjoy being as honest as possible about what the process of writing this book together was like, one, because I think it's interesting. people are curious about how two people write a book together, but two, I think. It also shows how hard friendship can be and how hard talking about race can be and show that, you know, if we were willing to go to uncomfortable places to get all of this down on the page, to tell this story that means so much to us, then we think it's possible for other people, for readers who might be reading this book, who were nervous about going to those uncomfortable places themselves. So There's technical challenges when you write with another person. We had to figure out how to collaborate on the page, and we did that through Google Docs. And a lot of people have assumed that because I'm the white author, I wrote our white character, Jen, and Christine wrote our Black character, Riley. And it's actually not the case. We really did, each of us put about the same amount of work into each character And that was important to us because we wanted the characters' voices to be distinct. The book goes from, it it switches perspectives in each chapter. But we still wanted the novel to feel like it was written by one person. You didn't want to feel any abrupt switches. And so one of us would start with any given scene, and then the other one would kind of go in and edit and layer things on top. And as as the ball started to get rolling, and as we knew more where the story was going once the bones got laid down. Then it was just both of us fast and furious going in and adding layers and adding character and just making it richer as we went along. We have a constant text chain when we're working in the Google Doc of like, All right, all right, I had this idea. I had this idea. I'm going in. I'm going in now. Okay, great. (laughs) I'm going in. (laughs) Tell me when you're out. I mean, it's like we're just we're we're going into the foxhole and we're getting our getting the job done and then handing it over to the other person.
2: I think also some of the pitfalls came. I mean, obviously, as Joe said, there are technical challenges, and Joe and I have never lived in the same place at the same time, right? And so we're doing a lot of this long distance, and there's the normal creative. I wouldn't even say differences, but, you know, should we do this or should we do this? Right. And that kind of friction. Um, but on top of all that, you know, you are having these really hard conversations about race and our characters, Riley and Jen, as we mentioned, met when they were little. So they didn't, they weren't having, you know, conversations about race when they were five or, you know, on the playground at 10 or what have you. And so in a lot of ways, this Incident when it happens is the first time they have to reckon with race in their friendship. And there is a parallel between Joe and I, and that we were relatively new friends when we started writing this book together. And we similarly had not had, you know, detailed, in depth conversations about race in our. Respective experiences and so forth, and so we had to do that in the course of writing this book because of the subject matter of our book. But it was hard to do. I mean, there were, you know, moments as a black woman, you know, talking about race can make you very nervous about, you know, the other person's reaction. What are they going to be dismissive? Are they going to be defensive? Are they going to? burst into tears, right? I mean, we have some of these kind of predictable or cliche dynamics, right, when it comes to race in America. And that's that can be nerve-wracking. And similarly, I think it's nerve-wracking on the, quote, other side, right, about fear of saying the wrong thing or it being interpreted the wrong way, right? So there's just, there was a lot to get through that I think we know on some level, because we see it play out in big picture ways, but even on an intimate, you know, individual relationship. It plays out in the same way. And and that was something we had to navigate.
1: I mean, that makes sense, especially as you said, if you weren't close friends or hadn't been friends for a long time when you began, there's probably even an added layer that you're trying to negotiate.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, talking about race when you're new friends is a little trickier, especially for me as a white woman, and I'm very honest about this, that I grew up in a very sheltered bubble. My suburb in Pennsylvania was a very white town. I went to this Catholic all girls high school, which was remarkably pale. And when I went away to college, I went to Penn. And even though Penn is a relatively diverse school, my friend circle, it wasn't just you know, not very racially diverse. It was other white kids from the Philadelphia suburbs. And I think you fall into a comfort zone and it's not an excuse, but it is what happened to me. And so this was the first time in my life that I was having not conversations about race. I've had conversations about race, but intimate conversations with a close friend about race. And as we've been talking about this book, finally, with people besides the two of us and our editorial team in the past couple of months, we've discovered that that is the case for, for a lot of, of white people. And so they see what happened with our friendship and the way that it plays out on the page. And what we're hoping is that people can really, really relate to that, both both what happened with us and what happens to our two characters.
1: I think so. And I also think that fiction really produces empathy. So I think reading a story like yours, where it is fictional, but it's representing all sorts of things that have been happening in our world, will probably help people understand better than sometimes nonfiction will.
2: Absolutely. I mean, that was our goal. We've been storytellers our whole lives, right? Joe's written a trillion books. I can't even keep track anymore. And I've been a book editor for 20 years. And so we really do believe in the power of fiction to foster empathy and to help people connect with, you know, even if it's some people that they wouldn't come across, quote, in their real lives, right? Like they could walk in somebody else's shoes. And that was a really intentional choice of ours to tell it in a novel and a commercial novel of that, because there are so many stellar Nonfiction books out there about race, about history, uh, you know, about social justice, uh, and certainly an audience for that. But there's something about a different approach to those subjects, right? Where it's not just history and facts and figures, which again, very important. But this is just a different way in to the subject and a way in that we hope is really allows people to have conversations and fiction and especially you know book club fiction right is is a great platform for people to have the kind of conversations especially now we feel so fortunate that our book is coming out in this moment in time because it does seem like people are more vulnerable to these kind of conversations hungry to have them thinking about these topics more and so we feel like this book can be a good tool, right, for people to say, I felt this way at this part, or can you believe that happened at this part? Or I didn't, you know, even understand until I read, you know, Riley experiencing XYZ, right? So it's just a pathway to understanding in a different way. And if that's not the best and most, you know, ultimate goal for fiction, I don't know what is.
1: I agree. I think walking in someone else's shoes in that situation is going to provide the best experience for some people who might not be reached by nonfiction or might not even pick up nonfiction. What about being an editor, Christine? How did that impact you all's writing?
2: You know, it's funny because we, in the beginning, um, Joe and I really reverted to our kind of editor author roles because when we met, I was Joe's editor at Simon & Schuster and so helped her with her last novel and so we were used to that dynamic right and then that broke down pretty quickly but you know for the first month or so of the writing process i admittedly was terrified of the blank page which is funny after all these years as an editor me telling my authors just go write just go do it it's fine and now i i'm a, I, I should apologize to every one of them individually for my uh cavalier attitude about this <laughs> But over time, you know, we were able to, to to break out of those roles. But being an editor, really, I mean, it, it, on two levels. One, it's the kind of stories that you want to see in the world. My whole career has just been devoted to, you know, what does is, what is the reading public want? What, are, what should we give them to read? And so this is why I was so excited about the opportunity. Uh, I mean, this is a book I would have loved to publish, right? Especially doing something so... Unique, we hadn't seen a collaboration between a black woman and a white woman in fiction in a novel that tackles race and social justice. So that right there was just something that was exciting. But also the idea of really creating a good story, I mean, mechanically and structurally, and pouring all that I've learned as an editor into what makes a good book with tension and pacing and character development. And what I really try to help my writers do right in terms of uh, enhancing their product. It was really fun and meaningful. Uh, and I think it helped me grow as an editor too, to kind of do it myself to be on the other side of things and then also to be edited, which was really uh, interesting. <laughs> and we had a great editor in the UK and a great editor in the US and you know it's sort of a little bit like the doctor becoming a patient. <laughs> but it was really fun.
1: That does have to be kind of funny to be on the flip side and be edited and be like,
2: hmm. Well, it is interesting because every editor has such a different process, right? But you'd often don't see other editors work because it's so personal between the editor and the writer. There's no way to, you know, I'm not reading other editors' editorial letters or what they're putting on the page, right? And so it's interesting then, an eye-opening, right, to see how other people's process works. And I found it very fascinating. And we really benefited from some great feedback and suggestions. And as an editor, I just so respect the editorial relationship and, and what that adds to a book. And so we were very fortunate that we had great editorial feedback because it's really invaluable.
1: Well, this is a question that I have thought about several times as I've spoken to authors, but have never asked. And it may be silly, but here goes. When you have an editor in the U.S. and you have an editor in the U.K., and they're both giving you advice and comments and things they want seen, do you come up with one product and then words are just changed kind of based on local dialects? Or do the books look different in the U.S. and the U.K.?
0: The books, the content of the book is the same for both uh, the U.K. and the U.S. I think there may be other books that it might change for. We were very, very lucky... That we had two wonderful editors for the U.S. and for the U.K. And I think that they because they also got along really well, our whole team that's publishing this book has just worked so well in tandem to create two very unique products, too. Because the U.K. cover and the U.K. package is very different. Right but all i mean it, it has it has a gold spray ombre on it for waterstones it's it's beautiful in the uk but that the us cover is like a work a gorgeous work of art but yeah the content is is the same for both and there are some things because this is a very it's a book set in philadelphia right you just don't get more american than a book set in philadelphia so there are some things that might not be recognizable to a uk audience but one of the things we've learned doing interviews there and here is that the issues of, of racism are affecting both of our countries, and sometimes in different ways. But the UK audience seems just as hungry for this and hungry for these conversations as our US audience.
1: Oh, absolutely. And it definitely seems like while the race issue is probably the worst here, it is a problem a variety of places, for sure. What about, though, I guess my question is, are they working together, the two editors? Do so they kind of work together in tandem with you all? They're not producing kind of separate things, I guess, is what I was trying to ask. Maybe I'm not asking that very well.
2: No, no, it totally makes sense. So when you're going through the editorial process with the book, most times the U.S. editor and the U.K. editor will combine feedback. It's a one editorial letter. Sometimes it's a call where everybody gets on the phone at the same time, or at least if it's on the rare occasions where it's two editorial letters, they're at least delivered at the same time. And then everybody talks through kind of what the changes are going to be uh, so that we're working in lockstep along the way. Because the last thing you want to do is send two different editorial letters with kind of two different, like change the ending to this. And then the other <laughs> letter says right. change the ending to this. So there is a certain amount of uh, collaboration in terms of what the, the overall feedback is going to be. And then there's one addition.
1: I'd always wondered because I was like, well, I know people talk about getting these different letters, but you can't be drafting two totally different books. So they must be working together at some point. So thank you. So you mentioned book clubs, and I know you all have very exciting news about Good Morning America and being selected for their October selection. Would you like to talk a little bit about that,
0: Joe? Yeah, it, it is just, it's an absolute dream come true. Christine and I were actually together when we found out, or very shortly after we found out about Good Morning America. I was on my way to visit Christine in New York from Philly and our entire editorial staff was trying to get in touch with me, but I was in the subway and Christine was already in her apartment, but I couldn't get up into her apartment because her doorman wouldn't let me up. And I'm just like, I'm sitting there and no information is getting through to me. And I get into her apartment. She's like, "Oh my god, <laughs> we're the Good Morning America book club back!" And you know, then we both jumped up and down, and we cried, and we called our editor, and then, and then we took our agents out together for drinks, and we bought them champagne, and it's just, it's magical. I, I I've been a journalist for twenty years. I know how hard it is to reach people with a story these days, especially when attention is just so fragmented because of social media and because so much of the news is so disturbing, that just to have someone help us elevate this story and get this book into more people's hands means so, so much to us.
1: Well, a Good Morning America book club pick is always my favorite. So I was thrilled to pieces when I saw you guys had been selected. And I just think they do such a wonderful job with their selections the interview and highlighting the book and just all of it. So congratulations. That is very, very exciting.
2: Oh, thank you so much. We really are so, so thrilled.
1: Well, what about title and cover? That's something that I'm always so fascinated with, how a title gets chosen, how a cover comes about. The U.S. cover is stunning and it sounds like I need to look up the U.K. cover and I will. But can you talk a little bit about both of those?
2: This was a rare occasion where we had the title from the beginning, and that almost never, ever happens. And when I say from the beginning, we had this title, I think, before we even wrote a word, or maybe we had the rough sketches of an outline. But it just sort of came to me one day, and I think that's because I've spent a career you know, just brainstorming titles, and we have all these title meetings, and people often underestimate how hard it is to come up with a great book title. So it just just felt like a gift that one, we had it so early and two, it never changed throughout the process. Um, It was just, this is going to be the title. And then with our cover too, same idea. Usually it's so much back and forth and Especially with covers where they can be so subjective, right? So it's half the people in the room like the purple and half the people in the room like the blue. And, you know, you can go back and forth a lot. But this was one of those, again, really rare cases where the art director created this beautiful jacket and sent it to the editor, Lindsay. And Lindsay shared with us and we shared with our agents. And it was instantaneous, you know, love at first sight. And, Every, you know, it's just that moment where it's like, this is the jacket, this is the jacket, this is the jacket. And we just, we love it so, so, so much. There were literally no tweaks, not even make the font bigger or smaller, this, you know, a little less yellow, a little more pink. It was just perfection.
1: I think it's just stunning. I love it. And I love the way the color kind of goes on to a couple of the letters. And I just think it's so representative of your story. It's just stunning.
2: Well, one thing I just wanted to add, too, about the the title is we love a title that works with on, on multiple levels, right? And so with We Are Not Like Them, we really liked it because it hit on the themes of the story. So We Are Not Like Them in terms of capturing our polarized society, right? Everyone's thinking, oh, no, I, we're not like them. They're like that. You know, we're not like them on so many different sides. And so it really kind of calls out the the tribalism that we have. But also on another level, a more positive level, it really speaks to Riley and Jen's relationship and that they really feel like they have something special that, you know, being friends since they were little girls and having this long-term friendship with all its shared history and inside jokes and care and concern and And so, you know, it's a little bit like we are not like that. Like our friendship is special. You know, we have something really different here. Uh, And so we just liked it because it worked on multiple levels.
1: I always like titles like that, that when you're done with the book, you look back and you think, okay, that really does address several things in the book. Exactly. Too. Were you plotters or pantsers? So, did you really outline the story before you sat down to write it, or did it take a different direction Were there a lot of changes as you wrote? How did that work for the two of you?
0: So, I've done both. In when I've been writing books, I've sat down and just written, just gone right, just let go where the story takes you. And I've outlined. I will say that when you're writing a book with another person, you you've got to outline. You just you have to because you both have to be on the same page about the direction that you're going in. So we had a very, we had a hefty outline going into this book. And I will also say I'm a person, I don't get writer's block. I was a tabloid newspaper journalist for so long and in my early career. And if you don't write, it's like publish or perish, right? Like you're, you're fired, You're literally fired the next day if you don't publish your article by five o'clock back when we published print newspapers. But the outline doesn't allow you to have the writer's block, right? Because when you know where you're going, you can at least start to get those words down on the page. So I appreciate outlining so much more than I ever did. And I don't know if I'll ever go back. We'll see.
2: Also, our story was really intricately plotted because we were going back and forth between two characters in alternating chapters. And so we had to make sure that the Twists and turns, or certain plot developments, were happening in specific point of views, if that makes sense. And so, we had to be plan that out. That couldn't be haphazard, right? We just we had to figure out a lot of things before we dove in to the actual writing.
1: And you stuck with the outline. I mean, as you wrote, there wasn't something that you thought, "Oh, uh, we should go this direction," or "Oh, maybe that doesn't work uh, as well now that we're writing."
2: I'm trying to think. I think our our outline, the major beats of the story stayed consistent throughout. We did have some scene additions, scene changes, right? Like within the chapters themselves. Some characters who might have been introduced earlier or later. I don't know if you can think of anything specific, Joe. I can't think of anything that fundamentally changed from what we originally had conceived of the story and to the end.
0: Um, no, but not, nothing fundamentally changed in terms of, you know, what was going to happen in terms of plot. But I do, as we're like traipsing back down memory lane, I like to remember with this book, how hard this first chapter was. Oh God. We've changed it so many times. And we joke about some of the aspects of the original riley's gym bag (laughs) um we just it took us a long time to nail it but i think you know we wrote we finally like got the first chapter right i think after we'd finished the entire rest of the book right
2: yes also fun behind the scenes fact Riley used to have four brothers and <laughs> and now she does not. So
1: those are the things I'm just curious, you know, as you start out, you think, okay, we're going in this direction. And then as you work through it, you're like, I'm jettisoning the brothers.
2: Right. Too many brothers. They were too I can't even remember we couldn't even keep track of all their names. There were too many brothers. So they had to go.
1: <laughs> well, certainly the opening chapter is so sad, but just so gripping, and you just like have to keep turning the pages after you read that prologue.
2: Yeah, the prologue came to us early on, and it was really an, an important opening for the story. I, it's interesting because the bulk of the book is, of course, about the friendship between Riley and Jen, and how it's upended and how they you know have to face that reckoning. But the beginning of the story. Is about Justin, our victim. And as we said, this book is to some degree ripped from the headlines, ripped from horrible headlines. And part of our goal was to humanize those headlines. It's really easy just to let them all pass in a blur and, oh, who was that and who was shot there? And, you know, you just become, some people at least, you know, desensitized to what's happening in the world or people seem anonymous in a way. And so with Justin, we wanted to, he's a character that comes fully alive, you know, even in his short time on the page at the beginning, we hope that people see that he's a real dimensional person, or at least a functionally dimensional person. And that that has consequences and stakes and that you can feel them more when you have a sense of attachment to the character. It's, you know, like the empathy we've been talking about. We hope readers will instantly empathize with Justin and then of course his family as the novel goes on.
1: And kind of imagining what happened to him and just, you know, being there for that. I just felt it was very, very well done. Thank you. And you guys are writing another book together, is that right? We are.
0: We're in the Google Doc. texting
1: <laughs> <laughs> back and forth and using the Google Doc. Well, what's this new one about?
0: Actually, probably can't talk about it yet, right? Ah,
2: okay. I don't think so. Uh, but we we do want to continue, and our plan is to continue, exploring race and intimate relationships. So in this case, it's a friendship. We move on to sort of another relationship in the next book. but. The idea is the same, and our goal is the same kind of conversations and talking points or uh, discussion topics, but also ways to see the world differently or to experience a, a different perspective or take by way of a really relatable personal relationship or intimate relationship. I mean, we hope by way of Riley and Jen's relationship and we are not like them that readers see and are aware of how race plays out you know in 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 ways they might not otherwise be aware of in this case you know a friendship but also through Riley's experiences on the page and through Jen's experiences and so we'd like to keep that same milieu uh, for the for the next book.
1: And I guess you're just using the Google Doc and the text string. Are you doing anything differently as you start out this time?
2: That's a really good question. I don't think so. We haven't, we did a ton of interviews for We Are Not Like Them to make sure that we were getting the story right uh, with police officers, police officer spouses. We talked to a great police therapist. We just talked to lots of different people. And so we haven't we're sort of in the same stage as we were because those interviews came later so we're sort of getting the outline and the grounding of the story down and then we'll attack the interview process because we do you know feel like that's really important to the story we can use our imaginations of course and as fiction writers that's what you're supposed to do but we also want the authenticity to come through and this is another Kind of ripped from the headlines esque story with lots of different angles and and things to talk about and so again we want to make sure we get it right so I think we'll more quickly probably than last book go into interview phase wouldn't you say Joe
0: Yeah absolutely I think right now we do, we have a brief pause right now to launch we are not like them because of my reporting background and also because it's a lot of fun we we do really try to do as many interviews with people who are similar to our characters as as possible I think it it just makes for such a better book
2: you can come up with great details like one of the details that we we learned from one of our interviews and in talking to a, a police wife in this case was this idea of um, finding bullet casings in the laundry right from training or what have you what a detail that i Certainly wouldn't never you know have have thought of, and so it's it's things like that that enrich the story.
1: I love that you guys do that because I do think you probably come across details, as you just said, Christine, that you would not have encountered or thought about. So that's just wonderful that you do do those interviews. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've both read recently that you really liked.
0: Joe, do you want to start? Yeah, I would love to. Christine and I are both big readers, as you can imagine, and. It's funny because for a long time our, a lot of our, our books didn't overlap, so we could recommend books to each other. But um, now we've both been kind of stumbling on the same books and reading them at the same time, which is an entirely different kind of joy because now we get to talk about them as we're reading. And we both recently loved the book *Great Circle* uh, by Maggie Shipstead. Um, it's just such a sweeping epic of a novel, and. Maggie is so brilliant about so many things and she just has knowledge about everything. Christine and I were texting each other. We're like, how does she know everything about flying and also both world wars and, and arts (laughs) and Antarctica, like map and, and and also Hollywood celebrity pop culture. So it's, I loved it. It's one of the rare books. I actually went back and started reading it again recently just to, go back and remember how she set everything up. It's I mean, That one really, really stuck with me.
1: I have it, but I have not started it yet because it is big.
0: It is, but it goes fast. I mean, it can be
2: intimidating looking at all, yeah, three inches of it. But it's so immersive in it and escapist that uh, I think once you start it, it's one of those reads that, goes by more quickly than you think it will, based on looking at its size.
1: And I've heard the same thing you all said, that it's just fantastic, and that her writing is so good. And it's another great cover. It's so beautiful. Christine, how about you?
2: It's my turn, huh? Well, I love it that uh, Joe and I have been accidentally reading the same books at the same time. It's really fun. And we discovered another book that we were reading uh, at the same time just last week, which is Kate Bowler's new book, No Cure for Being Human is so so good I've been a fan of hers since she published her debut memoir everything happens for a reason which is about her diagnosis of colon cancer within the context of her being she's a religious scholar and you know the idea of does God have a preordained plan for us or you know the intersection of fate and our destinies—so uh, fascinating stuff—and so she's back again uh, with this book, which is just a look at the human condition. And I mean, I'm only 50 pages in, but it's just really life-affirming and lyrical. And I've been reading it a little bit every night the last week, and it's a little bit like a meditation. And that it's been a, a hectic time, and uh, you know, lots of what's happening in our lives and the world. And I just find it very calming. So if you're looking for a calming, life-affirming
1: read. You should check it out. Somebody else recommended that one recently, and I'm trying to think of who it was, but it, it sounds really good, and calm is good right now. Absolutely. Any other reading recs before we wrap up?
2: I think it's been such a strong year for memoir. I read two of my favorite memoirs of all time in this year, uh, which is always kind of fun to have a new favorite, even though I feel like I'm dethroning the old favorites, but for me, it was Somebody's Daughter by Ashley Ford, which I just think is a masterclass in memoir writing. It is so, so good. And I actually tried to buy that book and lost it. So it's bittersweet, <laughs> but uh, it's 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 just wonderful. And the other one is Between Two Kingdoms. Uh, I don't know what is with me in books about cancer diagnoses, but that uh, is also about a woman and her her cancer battle and her subsequent trip across country with her dog um, after she's in remission to sort of learn to live again and what her life is going to be like after you know she comes through this herring crisis. And so though it's about cancer, it really is about life, right? Like what are the terms we live our life on and what happens when we get a second chance for in any number of ways. And it's just, it's, it's a really beautiful read. Both of them are. So I highly recommend those two.
1: I have the first one and I still need to get to it. And the second one sounds really good. I'm not even sure I've seen it. I need to go look for it. Joe, how about you? Do you have any other books to recommend?
0: I do. Yeah. And like Christine, I I'm a big memoir fan and Christine is probably gauche for Christine to recommend this one, but I can, Um, because Christine edited this book. As well, um, Dawn Turner's Three Girls from Bronzeville, I thought, was one of the most beautiful nonfiction books that I read this year. And Dawn is just such an incredible journalist and wonderful person. And you know, Christine did such a great job editing this book that I got to read it months and months ago. And it came out last September or this recent September. And um, I just can't recommend it enough.
1: I've heard great things about that, and I didn't even know Christine had edited it.
0: Yes, that's one of mine. And I mean, I know
2: I'm partial, but it really is such a stunning, stunning story. And I love a book that's you know, 10 years in the making and a book that's so deeply personal. I mean, this is a memoir about her life and the life of her best friend from growing up and her younger sister and the twists and turns their different journeys take. But it's, it's a deeply personal story amidst a very topical story about race and gender and who gets opportunities and who doesn't and, um, you know, how much of our life is fate versus the decisions that we make. And it, it really, it, it packs a lot in one package, which is what I love in a memoir.
1: Lots and lots of layers. I agree. Well, you've convinced me. I'm going to go get that one. Ah, I hope you love it. I'm sure I will. Well, Joe and Christine, thank you so much for joining me in the Thoughts from a Page podcast today. It was just delightful to speak with both of you.
0: And we loved being here. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, this was great. It was such a, this was different from our other interviews and it was really nice to kind of dig into, into process and behind the scenes stuff that Christine and I both enjoy so much. So thank you for asking such incredible questions.
1: Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations From a Page bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza for sponsoring this episode and I hope you'll tune in next time.